Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, your journals, and let's dig into another week in 1 Peter. We've been in this book for quite a while, and we are taking our time, and I'm loving every moment of that. As you get your Bible and journals ready, just ponder this thought for a minute with me. Uh, Write this down, think it over, repeat it to yourself. Here, Here it is. When times are tough, love must more than ever be tangible. Just ponder that. Grapple with it. Think it through. I'll say it to you again. When times are tough, love must more than ever be tangible. Now, ironically, I have some relatives here today who are living proof of this. Uh, First of all, my mom and dad are here today. Um, My dad's sister is here, my aunt. And so there's some other family here. And um, I watched them do this with my grandparents, which would be my dad's parents. Uh, A few years ago, when my grandparents, we affectionately knew them as Pop and Mamma. If you're not from the South, you don't get names like that probably. But if you're from the South, that's just kind of normal. As they declined in years and with some medical issues and health matters, um, I watched the siblings make the best decisions for their parents. One of those was that they would move in with my parents. And so my parents built a home not only for them, but also designed to kind of accommodate my dad's parents. And as those things worsened, became increasingly difficult, you never heard a bit of complaining from my parents or those siblings. I watched their love become very tangible, provable. I've also watched this on Julie's side. They're here today as well, some of them. Theirs is a bit more recent. Julie's father passed away a little more than a year ago or so. And in the after effects of that, Julie's mother has moved in with her son, Julie's brother. This has just been a few months now. And I've watched them just beautifully take care of Julie's mom. Everyone has to make some adjustments. It's not easy. There's a selling of a home and lots of stuff and reorganizing. And and in that moment, I just watched love become very tangible. You know, frankly, many of you are doing the very same thing right now. From one end to the other, it may be with an aging parent, it may be with a child with special needs. It could be a, 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 any situation along that spectrum. You are proving that in the toughest of times, love must more than ever be tangible. And I think that's the essence of what Peter is getting at. In the next two exhortations to these elect exiles who are experiencing very tough times, it's to these sojourning strangers that he gives two exhortations in 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9. So your Bibles are open. Find chapter 4. Put a finger and an eye on verses 8 and 9. These two exhortations are tucked within five that occur between verses 7 and 11. We've been looking at these five exhortations to the body of Christ in light of the end times. We looked at one last week, which was to pray and to live with discipline. There are actually five in these five verses. I'll show you all five. We covered one last week. We'll cover two today. We'll cover two more next week. If you recall, it'll be on the screen behind me. It's to pray 
And then it's to love, then it's to share, and then, of course, it's to speak and to serve. We'll see all those over the course of three weeks. Today, just number two and number three, things that we're to do based on Peter's uh, writing here, especially in light of the end time. So can I read for us all five verses, first of all? Here's the entire pericope kind of in context. Follow with me, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and here's why, in order that in everything, whether serving or speaking, of course, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Say with me, church, amen. Now, that's the full context of our messages from last week, this week, and next week. We're zeroing in now on the middle two uh, exhortations found in verses 8 and 9. So here are those verses. I'm going to ask you to read those with me together as we focus in on, on Peter's call to love in such a tangible fashion here in light of end time. So together, church, can we out loud? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, before we look at these two specific commands, let me give you some general words about these two verses as a whole. You notice that Peter starts with the words above all. I don't think he's saying there that this matters more than the previous exhortation to pray and to live with discipline. I think what he's doing is he's moving towards more of a corporate relational um, situation Whereas the first one was more vertical individual. It's what we do individually as believers. We pray, we live. He's now saying congregationally, relationally, we may even say corporately, here's what matters most. And this is not an uncommon theme in the New Testament, to put love first. I remind you that Paul told the Corinthians that without love, all of their gifts and service and actions were a zero they would amount to nothing without love. Paul told Timothy that the end of the commandment is love from a pure heart, 1 Timothy 1. And can we make sure we remember that what Christ said about the second commandment, that it was like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not strange here that, that Peter just in general to the verses as a whole, would say love really matters. So this is his aim. Now, let me just show you something about these two commands I think is intriguing. These are not actually verbs. Now, they're, they're, they, they come across as verbs to you in the English translation, but in the text, the Greek text, they're actually nouns. He says here, you know, have love. Um, use hospitality. So how can something that's a noun, and this is kind of where I get a little geeky and excited because I love words, how do these nouns serve? Really, you read this, they're almost like functional imperatives, aren't they? 
Like here we're to do something. I've used the word commands today. I've used the word exhortations, but they're really not verbs. How is this working, Todd? What gives? Well, all of these five exhortations here, praying, loving, sharing, serving, speaking, they're all tied to the first imperatives, which are to be self-controlled and sober-minded back in verse 7. So when Peter says, live this way, self-controlled and sober-minded, and then connects to it all these other things we're to do, he is essentially, and I would say functionally saying, here's what you're to do in light of living with self-discipline and sober-mindedness. So these function-like verbs, though they're actually not, and what I think is happening is Peter's bringing great weight and force to these five things, the two of which today we're looking at would be loving and sharing. So though they're not verbs, hear them today. I'll say this a lot. These commands, these exhortations, they serve as verbs, as functional imperatives. And this is how, watch this, church, in light of end times, this is how disciplined Sober people live. We pray with discipline, first of all. And then today we're going to see that we are to love and to share. So let's give each one some additional individual thought. First of all, he says to keep loving one another earnestly. Take some good notes here. Jot in your Bible. Mark some words up. It's an interesting phrase here. The word earnest is really the word for stretch. It's what an athlete would do. Not before he exercises, it's what happens while he or she is engaged in the competition or the exercises. In other words, it's an all-out movement to accomplish a goal. It's stretching to the full limit. Now, some translations may say deep. Uh, There is a sense of constant uh, consistency. We could even use the word fervent. You could even use in a more common vernacular, hot. The sense is, this is an all-out kind of word. It's a stretching. So ESV here says, keep loving one another earnestly. The word love is the word for God-like love. It's sacrificial love. Would we all agree that takes stretching, right? I mean, we love friendly love. That's phileo. Married people love eros love. Here, Paul, excuse me, Peter is saying divine love is the kind that sacrifices, it stretches all the way out, it's earnest, it's constant, consistent, it's deep, it's hot, it goes all the way, it sacrifices. So what Peter here is really calling for is a consistent commitment to loving others sacrificially. And to be most textually accurate, he's calling for this in the body of Christ. So we have a responsibility to stretch ourselves to love one another, to stay hot on the trail of sacrificing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now notice, this is the second thing he says in light of the end times, the last days. We mentioned this last week. Go back in here. You'll you'll get some more explanation on the fact that we are in those and have been since Pentecost. I think it's intriguing that this is the very thing Jesus warned us about. Matthew 24, you can see Mark 13 as well. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says these words to his disciples about the end of the age and the sign of these times they were asking about. He says that the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus is warning his disciples. 
Don't let your love grow cold. Keep an earnest, hot, deep, constant commitment. Stretch way out for your brothers and sisters. In the end times, this is what will happen. There's a danger at hand that our love could grow cold. So let's stay earnest in loving one another. Now you may ask yourself, why is this the case? The next phrase tells us. Can we read it together, beginning with the word since? Say it with me. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Let me translate that for you in a way that you'll understand even more clearly. Since love veils or hides a plethora of sins. That's what the word multitude is. It's the word from which we get plethora. Like all kinds of offenses, a variety of infractions, love covers over them. Now he's not speaking here of a divinely kind of atoning covering. That's not even the word used. He's speaking of the kind that you know about where you just don't worry about some things because you love the person. Could somebody say amen? I mean, like forgiveness is just assumed. Like, you know, I know Mike. That's not what he meant. We're just going to, watch this. We're just going to overlook that. It's not that I don't admit it or acknowledge it. I just know Mike. I know we love each other. And so you know what? I'm just going to automatically cover over that infraction, that error. That's sin. I'm going to veil it. I'm going to hide it. This is the kind of love he's speaking of here. It's very similar to what Solomon said in Proverbs when he said, Hatred stirs up strife. Say it with me, church. But love covers all offenses. Peter here is calling for a kind of love in the end times, a kind of stretching out that fuels forgiveness. You live with this kind of love with forgiveness in view. And what kind of love is this? It's an, a, an earnest love, an enduring love, a constant love, a fervent love, a deep love, a hot love. It's a stretched out love. Now, if you put these two phrases together, here's what I think Peter is aiming at. Think about authorial intent, what's in Peter's head Here's the two words I think Peter's taking aim at. Love forgivingly. In the end times, as the day of Christ draws near and near, in these last days, Peter's calling on the church to love forgivingly. And can we just say the practically honest truth in front of each other this morning? This is what it takes for the people of God to live and serve together in a long-term fashion. Can we just say amen to that? It's easy to leave a church. First time you get upset, someone wrongs you, you find an offense, I'm out of here, and you'll go to the next place until that happens, and soon you're out of churches. This is why this verse matters so much. This is what it takes to live long-term in the family of God. It takes a thousand forgivenesses to oil the wheels of church life. After all, when times are tough, love must more than ever, what? Be tangible. And I think forgiveness is one of the ways that love becomes tangible. I was reading about this verse and some things about love and forgiveness, and Howard Marshall wrote an interesting paragraph that I thought was quite compelling as well as quite convicting. 
It may be a little dated, but uh, it's very relevant in some ways. You could even say about this paragraph that he's changed the names to protect the guilty. Let me read it for you. He didn't really change the names for us, but you'll find this, I think, equally compelling and convicting. Howard Marshall writes this about this verse. Quote, there in your local church is Anne, who doesn't know much about hygiene and is frankly smelly. Bill wears you out with incessant talking. Kathy's unspiritual and Don doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Gina's a gaudy teenager, never knowing how to act with courtesy and discretion. Hillary often grumbles. Irene has a different set of interests and values. She never goes to a small group because it conflicts with her local Amnesty International meeting. And so it goes and so it goes. Then there's Kevin, to be sure, who's really quite saintly, but rather drab as a person. None of them is very easy to love at full stretch. And there is also, of course, myself, and I figure in other people's lists of difficult people for similar reasons. And yet, love is the answer to the problem. We find a whole host of offenses, real and imagined, in other people. And only love will overcome them and regard them as of no account because love covers over a multitude of sins. Say, oh my. (laughs) This is why we must stretch our love to cover over a plethora of sins. That's what's needed in the end times. In the body of Christ. This kind of love. Notice the second functional imperative though. He says in the last part of of this section. This two verse section. Verse 9. He says we're to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's really more of a specific way to love. There's obviously forgiveness. And then there's this idea of showing hospitality. This is just seven words in the English text. A pretty simple phrase. It's five words in the Greek text. It all centers around the word hospitality. I don't know if you've thought much about the word hospitality. We get it from a combination of two words. This is kind of odd to me. Friend and stranger. That's how we get the word hospitality. It means that you love strangers. It means you're fond of people you don't know. And so as a result, you open your home, and I might add, you open your heart to those that you don't really know. When we say someone's hospitable, what we're actually saying, if you use the etymology of the word, is, oh, someone loves strangers. They're not worried about stranger danger, right? They open their homes, their hearts, they're fond of guests. That's the root meaning of the word. And Peter here is exhorting those believers to use or to show or to display hospitality. And then he says, without grumbling. So this is why I say Peter here is calling for more than just for you to share your stuff. He's actually asking you to share your your soul. To not just open your hands, but to open your heart. Yes, to have a, a key to your house and give it to someone, but also have the key to your heart to someone as well. This is why he has the qualifier. He's echoing really what 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 when he said, God loves a, say it with me, church, cheerful giver. Now, God loves givers, but God loves cheerful givers. That's what he's asking for. That's what he's calling for. So we don't, in a grumbling fashion, in a non-cheerful disposition, in a way that seems like resentful, we don't say, here you go. No, the text is calling, especially in light of end times, to love forgivingly and now to share freely. Because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you're needing an example of this, we need to look no further than the New Testament. In fact, let me read for you the account of their very first church. Here's Acts 4, the end of it. Just listen. It's, it's astounding how freely they shared their stuff. End of Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Isn't that astounding? And that's not among 500 people or 800 people or 1,200 people. That's among thousands of people. Do you recall there were 3,000 baptized? That's just the beginning of that early church's growth. And yet, here these early Christians were sharing freely, uh, giving with their hearts, giving with their houses, sharing their souls and their stuff. It's hospitality on display. You know, the text says they met in homes. Acts also records for us some interesting things about the church plant's generosity. Watch this. As Paul planted churches throughout that region, as he made his way back through them, first of all, to establish elders, he also requested and, I would say, encouraged strongly them to give to the fund that was being collected for the Jerusalem church in their famine. So watch this. The home church experienced persecution, Acts 8. They were all spread. Antioch became kind of a central place where then Paul and Barnabas and so forth, they spread out to plant churches. As that coin kind of flips over, all of those church plants are now giving back to the, we'll call it mothership. Is that okay to say? Because they were experiencing famine. Here the church plants are saying, hey, yes, we'll be generous. Check out 1 Corinthians 16. Paul lays out exactly how they should methodically and systematically give so that the mother church could make it during a famine. It's generosity. It's hospitality. John's third epistle, he talks about how that church in Asia Minor was welcoming strangers. Don't think they were just welcoming like anybody. It was these folks who were traveling servants of Christ, going from town to town. You might use the word missionaries. You could use the word evangelists, perhaps preachers. Uh, they were probably uh, more country-less nomadics who were on a gospel call, so to speak, and going from town to town. And so the, as they would enter a town... Fellow believers would welcome them in. They didn't know them, but they knew they belonged to them in, in, in a spiritual sense. So they'd welcome them in, house them, feed them, support them, send them on their way. John says in his third epistle, he says, thank you for living this way. And so hospitality, both with our stuff and our souls, is a common New Testament thread. And we see why Peter now says this, because 
When times are tough, love must be tangible. And forgiveness, hospitality, sharing your stuff, loving each other in this way, that's how love becomes tangible, felt, experienced. Let me just take a moment here, especially in light of our Carlislers who will be joining us today and are here. I want to thank you, First Family, for your hospitality and your generosity. We should do more of this. Often we don't. I just want to say thank you. It's been a tremendous blessing to see how much not only um, you give of your resources, but how much you share your stuff and how willing you are to do this without grumbling. Let me just share some stats with you. Do you know that most weeks in the life of our church, between 40 and 50 homes are open officially for small groups? Now, that doesn't count the probably uh, many other ways all the homes are open for dinners and people getting together and you know, kids playing and sharing meals, counseling or mentoring or coaching. I mean, just in an official capacity, between 40 and 50 of you every single week open your home to other first family errs and you share it. Thank you for your hospitality. That's a needed role, just acting as a host for a small group. So thank you. In fact, I heard this week about a former FFCer who did this not in this town, but where they now live. Many of you know Sean and Jody Peterson. They now live in Rapid City, South Dakota. And losing them, as much as it was right to move, I hated losing. They were just avid servants here. But several months they moved. I got a call this week from a friend who's a pastor in Sheraton. You know, many of you know Paul Miller. Paul's son works at Cedarville University. Now, there's a lot of connections here. Hang with me. His boss, you got that? My friend Paul's son's boss. He was traveling with his family, his wife and five kids, and they were camping in South Dakota, and their vehicle that pulled the camper uh, severely broke down. I think it was perhaps beyond repair. I'm not sure, but I got this email from Paul saying, hey, I was on some list with like five pastors in our state. Do, do you know anybody in South Dakota? I couldn't remember at that point if Sean and Jody had moved to Rapid City or where, so I just texted him and said, hey, what city did you guys move to? Was it Rapid City? And Jody wrote back, sure it was. I said, listen, I don't know if you guys would be able to, but there's this friend of a son of a fellow pastor in Iowa, and they're broken down, and they're living out of their camper at the car shop, and they don't even know when they're going to have their car or their truck repaired. All they need is some verbal encouragement. They don't really need anything, apparently. Could you just go by, maybe, and, and just say, hey, we're believers, and... Uh, what do you need? Joda wrote back, you know what? We're on errands. We'll stop by. I sent the name of the shop. And she said, yeah, me and Sean will. Come on, I'll find out later. I got a text that uh, whatever they needed, Sean met them the next morning and took the husband and got some things. And I don't know if they're still there or not, but it was so encouraging for me to hear about a former first family now in South Dakota living out hospitality. And this is what we do as believers, and it's so important. This happened here on site with Javier a few months ago. He may be in this service. I'm not sure. I've been trying to spot him. Javier showed up a few months ago, first time. You've heard his story. I'll just repeat it briefly. The Russells met him, but they weren't actually greeting that day. They were not on the official schedule, but they're friendly in general, hint, hint. 
And so they, they just said, uh, you look new. What's your name? He said, well, it's my first time. My name is Javier. They said, come sit with us. I think they sat either with each other or closing, but they did have lunch that day. Come to find out, Javier on his first Sunday here ended up going to their small group and to another small group, all on his very first Sunday because he was invited by people who weren't officially greeters, just like Christians. Imagine that, right? Friendly to folks they didn't know. That week he ends up going to, I think, another small group. In a matter of weeks, he becomes a Christian. He was baptized a few weeks after that. You know Javier. His story really is how God used hospitality to showcase the gospel. Our admin department told me this week that so far, 66% of our members have given at least once this year. I, th I think that's good. I'm shooting for 100%, like all of our elders are, okay? We make no bones about that. If you're a member here, give. But I'm really thankful 66% of our membership is given at least once. It enables us to continue to also be generous in our giving. You're investing financially. You're investing with your homes and your hearts and your souls and your stuff. I was thinking about your generosity to and through your church. It's what allows us to stay generous with one-time gifts to our partners, monthly support to those we're sending, our church plants, local ministries, uh, our staff. In fact, um, I looked this up this past week and confirmed with that, that same department, those who kind of run our finances. Last year, out of all the expenses and um, what we spent, about 20% went to missional purposes and causes. I know we budget around 11, 10, 11% towards regular partners. But I was really just overjoyed that out of all the giving, and there was a good surplus last year that we gave a lot of that away. I was so overjoyed that your hearts are to be generous so that we can in turn be generous. We're not a reservoir, we're a conduit. Amen, church? And thank you for being generous with your souls and your stuff, your hearts and your homes, so that we can in turn, as a collective body, be generous. Because it pays, and it's wise to give to and through your church. To be very frank with you, more happens because of the giving and the hosting and the hospitality as a collection than probably any one of you could do individually. It's called the, 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 the cooperative effect, cooperation. So thank you. I mean that. Thank you for your hospitality, your generosity. It lets me know you are loving tangibly. So these two exhortations are, are quite clear and simple, aren't they? Love forgivingly and share freely. Let me just say one or two more words about this before I kind of land this plane. You may be saying, well, Todd, where's the gospel in this? Come on, there's probably folks here who aren't born again. They're not a Christian. They came to check out things. They're curious. They're under conviction. They're like, Javier, come on, you got to share the gospel. Amen. I, I'm not denying that. But I think sometimes we fail to see that it's in this kind of preaching often that the gospel is implicit and inherent. That, Like, who lives that way? And watch this. Who benefits from that? I'll tell you who does. Christians live that way, and their brothers and sisters benefit in that way. Can I just say this to you in the insanely practical way that I am so thankful that God has saved me and put me in a church where this kind of love is shown. Amen? That's not what we're after. We're not trying to seek that. We're not trying to leverage and manipulate for that. 
But aren't you thankful for the body of Christ and its local expression where you can love and be loved in that way? And that doesn't happen until you come to faith in Christ. You believe that Jesus is the only way. God saves you by his grace and repentance and faith. You're placed into his family spiritually and then you realize that physically by other believers and sisters being around you're in his church and suddenly you, you, you experience a level of love you didn't know existed, not only in giving it but in receiving it. Man, I am so thankful for the body of Christ. And that lifestyle of loving tangibly is often the greatest witness we have to those who are looking and watching and wondering, why should I become a Christian? Is that really true? Will this stand the test of time? What are you really after? And we just keep loving each other even in the toughest of times, forgiving and sharing and proving God's love is real. Let me answer one more question before I kind of give you our take-home truth. Because there, there may be this question in your head, you know, why these two first? Sometimes the preacher wants to kind of get in the head of the listeners and ask, you know, like, what's rolling around in there? What are your questions after hearing a text? One of the things I asked myself was, why would these two be mentioned first in Peter's mind? After saying vertically, Make sure that praying with the discipline is first on your radar. We should then love and share. Why are those two, like, hot off the press? I think history gives us the best insight. And it's, of course, scriptural history, but it's also recorded history. If you recall, this this was a very difficult time for the church. And this will be a difficult moment for you to kind of place yourself into, okay? Because we are in the end times just as they were. But for most of your American experience, it doesn't seem near as difficult. Could you just nod and say, you're right? Of course. It doesn't seem near as unjust or or the mistreatment. The whole uh, tenor of this book doesn't seem to be playing out a whole lot in our current time much. But in their time, it was an increasingly hostile culture. The first 10 regimes uh, in this empire, the first 300 years, were anti-Christian up until about Constantine's reign. This is where Peter's writing towards the 60s and 70s of the first century. Hebrews says for us that many of these very readers had their homes plundered, taken from them. You can read about some of this in Acts 8 when the majority of the church was driven out of Jerusalem. Only the apostles stayed. And so they they were, in, in a very real sense, nomadic. They were countryless, which is why Peter here says often, you know, you're just exiles, you're, you're strangers, you're wanderers. That's spiritually true, but it's also physically true. They were in difficult situations. Now listen very carefully. When those kinds of things are happening, here, here's what I think, humanly speaking, occurs. Things get under our skin quicker, and things get pulled from our hands quicker. Are you with me? In tough times... Even though yours is not at that level as the first century, I think you can relate that when things get difficult, when suffering increases, things get under your skin and things get pulled from your hands. We can say it like this. We lose our patience and often we lose our possessions. That happens. It happened intensely in the first century and forward. It happens 
intensely now in other places, not so much in this place, but it does happen. In principle, though, we would say, when times get tough, we tend to let things get under our skin and we watch things somehow get pulled from our hands. We lose our patience and our possessions. And what is it that Peter's now calling for? Watch this. Love forgivingly because things will get under your skin. And share freely because things will get pulled from your hands. You'll want to lose your patience faster. So instead, love forgivingly. And you're going to find that you're going to lose some resources. So share freely. Receive freely. When I begin to think about the history of the church in this first century, and even Peter's audience, it began to make sense why he would now say, man, once you align and you're starting to pray with the discipline vertically, horizontally, here's the first two things I want to say to the church. Love forgivingly and share freely. So let me give you this in a simple nutshell. It's a no surprise, no secret, take home truth today. You probably already said it in your mind. Say it with me out loud, would you? Love tangibly by forgiving and sharing. Say it again with me, would you, church? Love tangibly by forgiving and sharing. We're calling for the kind of love that is felt. It's more than just um, verbal love. It's visible, tangible It's seen. It's not just expressed with your lips. It's experienced in life through things like forgiveness, through things like sharing. These are so important in the church that we love in a tangible fashion because when times are tough, love must more than ever be tangible. So I'm calling you to join me this week in loving tangibly. In light of the end times we're in, the day of Christ drawing closer and closer, these last days as they, we get nearer and nearer to the coming of Jesus, let's not escape the exhortations here to love forgivingly and share freely. With that ruminating in the spiritual Bella, you have. Let me ask you some questions. Who do you need to love today? I could rephrase that. Who do you need to forgive today? Because love covers a multitude of sins, right, church? So who do you need to love slash forgive today? What do you need to give today? With whom do you need to freely share your stuff? Or let's go a little deeper. With whom should you freely share your soul? Is there someone today that you should give a key to your house and someone today you should give a key to your heart? What resources do you need to provide to help a brother or sister in need? How does your love need to stretch all the way out and be tangible? As you consider these questions and your answers to them, 
I'm going to throw one verse on the screen of your heart and the screen of your mind, which perfectly shows us the ultimate giver and lover. It's God, the most hospitable one, the one who graciously gives us all things and who showcased and displayed his love for us in the greatest way possible. Here's the fuel for your tank today as you think about who you're going to love, forgive, share with, help. Here's the gas for that engine. You ready? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen, church? Do you see now why John would write five chapters really all about how love is the predominant trait of true true children of God? Because how can anyone look at the otherworldly love of God shown in Christ on the cross and then not love his brother or sister? This is what Peter's calling us to. Love forgivingly, share freely, and we can because God has so loved us. Will you pray with me? All of your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I'll ask you to stand just in a moment. Until that time, can you just for a moment allow the Holy Spirit to begin to press into you with some names and situations? And will you bring your yes to the table, church? We say often around First Family, put your yes on the table, then let God decide which question he's going to ask you. This morning, perhaps, he's brought some names and situations, places. He's brought specifics to your mind. It may be involving forgiveness, giving, showing hospitality. It's going to involve some kind of love in a tangible way. I want to implore you and plead with you to take action. Because that is what God did for us. Of his own accord and in his own character, before the foundation of the world, God took action to save and reconcile sinners unto himself. So church, in light of the end times and the soon return of Jesus, let us love forgivingly and share freely. Oh, Holy Spirit, Press into us in these moments. Cause obedience to spring up. Produce fruit. Oh God, draw us closer and closer. Develop in us a devotedness to following you for your glory and the good of your people. Would you stand, First Family? Everyone's standing. We pray this together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's people said, amen.